Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Stagecraft is brought to you by Manhattan Center's TV One Studio. Located on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City, TV One features a 3,800-square-foot stage, audience seating for up to 200, and 12,000 square feet of office production space. If that sounds like a lot, wait until you see how much more Manhattan Center's TV One offers. You can find out now at mc34.com forward slash TV One. That's mc34.com forward slash TV One. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars and creators of the hottest shows on Broadway, off Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to Aaron Sorkin. He's someone who doesn't need much introduction, especially not to theater fans, since his breakout work was the play A Few Good Men, which premiered at the Kennedy Center in 1989 and went on to a Broadway run and then, of course, to the movies in 1992 film version that starred Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. Since then, Sorkin created TV's The West Wing, still hugely popular despite having ended its seven-season run way back in 2006, as well as Sports Night, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, and The Newsroom. He's also written films like The Social Network, Moneyball, and Steve Jobs, and made his film directorial debut with the starry Molly's Game. Now, of course, he's back on Broadway as the writer of a hit new stage version of one of the most famous and beloved titles in American literature, To Kill a Mockingbird. We spoke just prior to the Tony nominations about the process of adapting a classic. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me, Gordon. Yep. So... Two of the cast members of To Kill a Mockingbird were uh, on the podcast somewhat recently, and they were talking about... Celia and and Gideon. Gideon, exactly. Um, And they were talking about the sort of challenges and rewards of thinking of To Kill a Mockingbird as a new play and not, you know, a novel that we... A hugely influential novel that we all read in school. Um, Was that... Did that mirror at all how you ended up having to approach it as you were writing, as you were approaching it as a writer? Yeah, it it does. Um, uh, When I started out, uh, I was, uh, very. I thought it was a suicide mission. Uh, (laughs) uh, I thought. So why did you say yes? I guess the question. I said yes uh, uh, because the opportunity to be back in a theater doing a play uh, was just much too great. Uh, I was willing to be a suicide victim. Uh, uh, But, uh, you know, I thought starting out the the best I can do is not ruin it. Uh, Okay. Uh, So my first draft was terrible. Right. Um, uh, How so? How? It was, I had taken this basically the scenes from the book that were were most important in terms of telling the story and i stood them up and had uh, you know instead of being described by harper lee there uh, uh it, it's actors talking to each other and the best you could say about it really was that it was harmless which is probably the worst thing you could say about any play particularly to kill a mockingbird yeah uh and it it it, it was like a greatest hits album performed by a tribute band you know uh-huh. uh and I was so frustrated by the draft that I had just written. Uh, and after a conversation with Scott Rudin, our, uh, producer, our producer, yeah. 
Uh, Who secured the rights initially and approached you with the idea? He did. He called me one day and said, I've got some really exciting news. Uh, After several years of trying, I've secured the stage rights to to go on Mockingbird. Um, And you foolishly said yes. And I I, I did. Um, So after that first draft, uh, what I did was I stopped using the word adaptation. Um, I I followed – I I was lucky enough uh, to be taken under William Goldman's wing uh, when when I was in my 20s. Um, And uh, we remained close until he died a few months ago. And uh, Goldman's advice on adaptations always was uh, you got to fall out of love with source material. Mm. Well, there wasn't any chance I was going to fall out of love with To Kill a Mockingbird, but I I stopped using the word adaptation. Um, My goal was no longer to lovingly swallow the book in bubble wrap and gently transfer it to a stage. I was going to write a new play. I was going to take the circumstances uh, of the book uh, and I was going to write a new play. I wasn't going to pretend that I was writing the play in 1960 uh, and I wasn't going to try to do a Harper Lee impersonation. Uh, There was just nothing to be gained there. Uh, I I wasn't going to do Harper Lee better than Harper Lee does Harper Lee. So... Uh, uh, so I wrote a new play. Right. And w- so you initially, though, your relationship to the novel is the same as all of ours, right? You read it as a child and sure. you knew it. Uh, uh, I read it in uh, okay, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. Right. Uh, whenever it was, we read it. There. Saw the yeah. movie many, right. many times. Um, and then w- w- once I went back to it, right. uh, after, like I said, there was that first uh, try that, that that got me nowhere. Right. Um, uh, and once I went back to it, I suddenly had a different relationship uh, to the novel, uh, which is uh, I was there were things that were troubling me, and I was sort of doubly troubled because I hadn't been troubled by them right. uh, before. Can you give us an example? Of- yeah, I'll give you a couple. Yeah. Uh, my favorite scene from the book, my favorite scene from the movie. I think it's a lot of people's favorite scene uh, from the book and the movie. Right. The end of the trial. Uh, Atticus is packing up his briefcase. The courtroom has emptied out, except for everybody up in the balcony, what they called the colored section. He turns around and he sees that they're all standing uh, in in silent respect uh, for Atticus. And uh, Reverend Sykes turns to Scout and says, Miss Jean Louise, stand up. Uh, Your daddy's passing that scene, I always would choke up. I'd get tears in my eyes. Right. My father would choke up. He'd get tears in my eyes. He and I always talked about that scene. And my father is uh, a dyed-in-the-wool, bow-tie-wearing, liberal uh, intellectual. So how can my father be wrong about anything? <laughs> um, and so I just began diagnostically trying to figure out, why is it I love this scene uh, uh, so much? What's well, it's, it's a good movie scene. Uh, uh, there's yeah. no question about it. I get that. Um, but what's... What's going on? Uh, uh, what's happening that I love this scene? Uh, and I realized that what it was was that those people standing in the colored section should be burning the courthouse down. They should be rioting in the streets. They should be chanting, no justice, no peace. Um, but instead, they are standing silently, docile, um, in gratitude to the white liberal guy for being one of the good ones. And isn't that what we all want, to be identified by any marginalized uh, group of people as he's one of the good ones? Um, 
and uh, and I was troubled by that. Yeah. Uh, that um, I, I, I I didn't suddenly blame my father or anything. I didn't blame any of us, but I was troubled by that. Uh, and so in the play, uh, I, I turned that upside down. I don't I don't want to give away uh, uh, too many spoilers, but right. in Atticus's relationship with Calpurnia. Yep. Uh, that I, I, I've, I've kind of faced yeah. that head on. Yeah, for people who have seen it, it's ve- the uh, link to what you were just describing and the kind of efforts you make to m- ensure that uh, all the characters have a voice, including the African-American characters. Well, that was another thing, right? uh, uh, which is that uh, in the book, there are only really two significant African-American characters. Right. There's Calpurnia the maid and there's Tom Robinson, the, the accused. The accused. Yeah. Uh, and in this story... Uh, about enormous racial friction in the Jim Crow South. Neither of the American African American characters really have any much, very much to say about it, and they certainly don't have any agency. Calpurnia is most concerned with whether Scout's going to wear overalls or a dress to school, and Tom Robinson gets to plead for his life, uh, and that's it. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, again, uh, in 1960. Using African-American characters only as atmosphere uh, is the kind of thing that would go largely unnoticed. Largely unnoticed, though not entirely unnoticed, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Mm. Uh, but in, uh, in 2019, uh, today, uh, it's not only uh, wrong, but it's a wasted opportunity. You want to hear from uh, uh, these two characters. You want to give them agency uh, um, and... Uh, whatever it is they have to say. I mean, you want it thrown into the pot and, uh, and stirred around. Uh, and so uh, uh, Calpurnia now uh, is kind of, um, uh, listen, Bob Ewell's the antagonist, uh, uh, but Calpurnia is kind of an intellectual uh, uh, an antagonist. It, it obviously has a great emotional foundation. Um, and Tom Robinson, what in the book and in the movie is a simple mistake that he makes uh, on the stand. Uh, it, it it wouldn't be a mistake in any other day and age, uh, but in this at this time in this place, uh, he says that he felt sorry for uh, someone who is white, and uh, uh, the white jurors take great offense right. uh, to his feeling sorry uh, for a white person. In the play, it's not a mistake. Uh, it's you say I'm allowed to curse. Yeah, it's fuck you. Um, it's Tom Robinson taking this one moment. He's getting uh, absolutely, you know, hounded by the prosecutor, uh, by Gilmer, is being called boy. Uh, uh, he's being disrespected. Uh, there's this continued ugly suggestion that it, it, he's a sexual predator who, you know, is leering at uh, uh, at Mayella. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, he's just been he, he's been in jail for seven months uh, uh, waiting for this trial. Uh, he, you know, he's even been told to say what to say uh, by Atticus. So this is Tom Robinson grabbing for one chance at self-determination. Uh, of or what Atticus simply calls dignity, um, that a man will have his dignity. Um, and uh, so there was that. Right, yeah. And did that feel like a massive departure to you as you were doing it? Was there an understanding? Because, you know, for a while, the Parker Lee estate considered it a massive departure, from what it sounds like, from the legal situation yeah. that has now been resolved. But It has um, been resolved. Did it, uh, okay. Did it seem like a, like a big turn for you, I guess, as you were doing it? 
It didn't. And do you um, think of it as one now, I guess, it, also? I, well, listen, on the one hand, it's as big a turn as there, there can be, yeah. uh, right? Um, and yet you achieve it with just a quarter turn uh, of the wrench. Right. Um, uh, and same thing with Calpurnia. Same, things with, same yeah. thing with, uh, uh, with a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, did I consider it a big departure? Uh, let me put it this way. I really didn't care yeah. uh, uh, one way or another because, again, I was no longer judging uh, you know, how I was doing so far uh, with this based on how close I was uh, uh, to the book. I was just b- judging it based on its merits as a play. Um, as far as the Harper Lee estate goes, and by the way, when we're talking about the Harper Lee estate, we're talking about one person. Sure. Uh, um, right. uh, her name is Tanya Carter. And uh, uh, she had, uh, you know, in in making Atticus, Atticus is not the protagonist in the book. Uh, Scout is the protagonist. Right. Uh, a protagonist has to change somehow. They have to have a flaw uh, and they have to be put through something and they have to change uh, as a result. Atticus doesn't do that. He's made out of marble um, uh, and he's the same at the beginning as, the, as he is at the end. A point even Harper Lee makes uh, at the end of the book. She mm, ends the book uh, by saying, you know, Atticus is sitting over Jem's bed. He's been given a sedative. He'll be asleep for the night before they take him to the hospital. Uh, and the book ends with, um, uh, with Harper Lee or Scout really saying um, uh, that uh, Atticus was sitting over Jem's bed and that's where he would be in the morning. Uh, in other words, a steady, faultless GPS uh, right. is, is Atticus. <laughs> right, right. A nice thing, nice thing to write about. But I wanted Atticus to be the protagonist right. uh, in the play. And that's not drama, right? That's not Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it, it, there are different rules for a play. The rules for drama were set out by Aristotle in 350 BC when he wrote the Poetics. The rules of drama are four centuries older than Christianity. So you have to follow them. Yeah. Um, uh, and... In, uh, so I had to give Atticus a, a flaw now, uh, and Atticus had to change. And Atticus's flaw uh, is the qualities. I, I, I didn't give him flaws. I simply right. took things that we learned when we were reading the book in school, uh, took things that we had regarded as virtues, uh, and looked at it a different way. For instance, Atticus says that there's goodness in everyone. All you have to do is crawl around inside someone's skin. Um, and that sounds like a really nice sentiment. Um, it also sounds like there were fine people on both sides. Right. Uh, right. So what do we do which about is a that? Thing, which is a more contemporary reference as uh, for yeah. listeners who maybe... Uh, and that was going on as you were writing it, right? Exactly. So, yeah. I... Um, uh, listen, I'd prefer that that moment in time didn't happen. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about the Trump press conference. Obviously, yeah. I'd prefer that Heather Heyer not. Of course. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, boy, when it happened, uh, I was able to write some scenes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> And so uh, playing Atticus is an actor you've worked with uh, before on mm-hmm. the newsroom and other projects. What what was it, what was useful about having, and it sounds like you went to Jeff Daniels uh, early in your sort of thinking about this project. Is this, what was useful about having an actor you've worked with before, and particularly Jeff, in your mind as you were 
considering Atticus? Well, first, uh, there was never a conversation about uh, any other actor. In fact, in that very first phone call from Scott, the, the very first call, the conversation ended with Scott saying, and we'll do it with Jeff, right? And I said, yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and that was that. Uh, it, it's like we weren't even bothering to ask Jeff if it was okay with him. He didn't right. know it, but he'd been, he, you're going to be playing Atticus right. Fitch. Right. Uh, and uh, it, listen, it's, there are a lot of reasons it's, it, it, it's great working with Jeff. He is one of the very finest actors uh, we have. Uh, his facility with language, uh, his gravitas, his humor. But uh, I also knew that as a company member, um, he was going to be a great leader. Uh, he was going to be somebody people didn't want to disappoint. Right. What, like Atticus himself. Exactly. If anything surprised me, uh, it's that uh, as, as dearly as I love Jeff, as much as I admire him and as much as I, you, you, know, you want to cast him in, in everything, uh, uh, you're right. Uh, I was actually surprised by how well he did with the amount of... We, we, we had a very luxurious rehearsal period. We had three separate labs uh, in a sub-basement uh, at Lincoln Center, and then six weeks of rehearsal, and then six weeks of previews before we opened. Now, I've seen Jeff on the set of the newsroom uh, nail down a scene in a morning. I've seen Jeff uh, with the, the shooting rehearsal schedule that we had on Steve Jobs where we would right. uh, uh, rehearse for 10 days, then shoot that, then rehearse for 10 days, then shoot that. Uh, I, I've seen Jeff, uh, you know, basically what Jeff the shark gets as big as the tank. He's got 10 days uh, uh, to work. Uh, uh, he's going to use all 10 days. Right. Watching him have six months, knowing that the performance he gave at the first table read could have been his opening night Performance and people would have thought uh, it was brilliant. Um, but watching him take every day uh, of that six months, really closer to nine months, uh, uh, until previews started, just a, just a couple of days into previews, uh, he just exploded uh, onto the stage with the Schubert, put the audience in his pocket, and didn't let him go until the play was over. It was a sight to see, boy. Stagecraft is brought to you by Manhattan Center's TV One Studio. Located on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City, TV One features a 3,800-square-foot stage, audience seating for up to 200, and 12,000 square feet of office production space. If that sounds like a lot, wait until you see how much more Manhattan Center's TV One offers. You can find out now at mc34.com forward slash TV One. That's mc34.com forward slash TV One. You alluded to this uh, early on as we started talking um, about the the reason one of the reasons you said yes as quickly as you did to Mockingbird is that you were just itching to get back yeah. on stage. Tell us about that and that impulse. Well, you know, all I, I'm an accidental writer of movies and television yeah. shows. 
all I ever a very happy accident, believe me. Right. Uh, but all I ever wanted to be was a, a, a playwright. I, after college, I came to New York to start my life as a struggling writer, and I I only ever wanted to be a professional uh, a playwright, which is to say, uh, I, if if I could pay my rent, pay my phone bill uh, with money that I made writing. Right. Uh, that to me would be an impossible dream realized. Right. So everything else is um, it, it, it delicious gravy it, it, <laughs> is is what it is. I, I went to L.A. Uh, my first play was A Few Good Men. Yep. Uh, and I was very young when I wrote it. Went out to L.A. Uh, uh, to do the film adaptation. And it's the oldest story in the book. You're going to come right back to do your second play. But you get tempted by another movie and then another movie. And then I got tempted by a television series uh, and then another right. television series. And, um, uh, and none of these television series did I expect to last very long. I thought, well, once I've written the West Wing pilot, that'll be that. <laughs> no done. one's going to put this on TV. Um, and uh, four years later. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right. Um, uh, so uh, I, uh, I have, it, it, it's been uh, 27 years uh, uh, since my Broadway debut with A Few Good yeah. Men, and this is only my third play. Yeah, because Farnsworth uh, Invention was, what, a dozen years ago-ish? Yeah, ish, yeah. Ish, uh, yeah. 11 or 12, I think. Right. Um, yeah. uh, and I would like to have written uh, more plays than that. But, uh, l- listen, I, l- right. I'm not going to get grumpy because course, yeah. I, I got waylaid writing some movies and television right. shows that I love. Right. Uh, right. I, I'm as proud of those as anything. Yeah. But I'm m- most comfortable uh, in a th- I still feel out of place in LA. I still feel out of place on a movie set. Um, uh, I'm most comfortable in a rehearsal room where the set is taped out on the floor. Uh, and whether it is a 99 seat church basement uh, or the 1500 seat Schubert Theater, right. which is the Carnegie Hall of Broadway, yeah. um, I'm, uh, I'm so happy just pacing the back of the orchestra during previews. What, do you have a sense of what theater allows you to do as a writer that you aren't uh, able to do in film and television? What it uh, yeah. kind of creatively lets you do? Uh, well, first of all, I, I like um, I like doing things in a theater that you can only do in a theater. Right. Um, uh, there, there's a lot of stagecraft in uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes. Uh, both because Bart Share. Is, yeah, the director, uh, yeah. our, our director who uh, he's a brilliant stage director who in his spare time directs operas for the Met <laughs> so there's an, an enormous theatricality to it our set designer Miriam Buther lighting designer Jennifer Tipton costume designer Anne Roth sound designer Scott Lair um, yeah, well, uh, and, and I'm, I'm sorry for the, the these are four very important names to us uh, uh, because they are also four co-authors of uh, of this production, I like stagecraft a, a lot. It's the name I, of this podcast. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> ironically, uh, when I write a movie or an episode of television, yeah. um, when I should be getting more cinematic, I like enclosed spaces. Uh, I mm-hmm. like uh, uh, as sh- uh, you know. They tell you when you get a, a a new dog, when you get a new puppy. Uh, you should get a crate that's just big enough 
for the puppy to be able to turn around and but no bigger because they like the security of those four walls. Right. So do I. That's why, you know, it, it, yeah. if, in the movies and television that I write, things mostly take place in offices. Right. Um, right. Hallways, to be fair, you know, <laughs> moving the, in the hallway. Yeah. Moving in the hallway yeah. happened as a reaction, sure. as a Thomas Schlamme reaction. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tommy was uh, executive producer, principal director on Sports Night. The West Wing and Studio 60. Right. It happened as a Tommy reaction to all these scenes yeah. I was writing in offices. Yeah, you can't uh, just have people sitting around chatting. You would say, right? we need some visual uh, <laughs> interest here. Would you mind? Would it be okay with you if I had them get up, walk down the hall, get a cup of coffee, uh, uh, and then walk back to the office while they're doing all this? Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I, I'm the talk part of the walk and talk. Tommy right. was the walk part of the walk and talk. Right. Um, right. Uh, anyway, uh, I have forgotten, Gordon, what your question was. <laughs> well, I was talking about, actually, you just sort of answered it. It's sort of what you can do uh, in theater that you're not allowed to do. But, and that, that, that is, you can sit in a room if you want to, right? And then you can also um, employ sort of stagecraft, right? In a, yeah. To do and you to can have transitions in a different way. 24 right? actors, some of whom yes. are playing characters that have already been killed. Right. You can have them walk downstage and sing a Methodist hymn right. uh, as the penultimate uh, moment in the show right. it's theatrical you can have uh, right. uh, listen the opening moments of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird are designed to do something uh, in particular yeah. when the curtain goes up and it's not actually a curtain at all it's a yeah. wall right. uh, uh, that uh, yeah, rises. Yeah. when it goes up you're surprised to see what you're looking at um, we, we one of the things that was kind of fun uh, is we knew that most people uh, coming into the theater have read To Kill a Mockingbird or yeah. seen the movie or both. It was fun leveraging those expectations. Yeah. So that front wall goes up and they think they're going to be looking at a front porch, a bucolic rural street, maybe a courtroom. Who knows? They're not. They're looking at what kind of seems like the set where Childish Gambino did This Is America. Um, oh, it yeah, is, that's true. Yeah, that's sort of a big it's warehouse It's a warehouse yeah. space that hasn't been visited in 60 years, right. okay? There right. are some broken windows. The, uh, the yeah. paint is peeling. And uh, there are these three actors, and they start talking to the audience. And the first line of the play is something didn't seem right. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sorry, something didn't make sense. Right, right. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, we are saying to the audience right away, forget everything uh, uh, that you came in here with. Right. Um, uh, they're about to have an argument about what happens at the end of the book and yeah. could it have, uh, uh, possibly right, happen. Right, yeah. um, so that's something you can do in the theater yeah. that you can't do. But uh, – when you start writing a play, I mean, I had this experience with Farnsworth. Yeah. When you start writing a play after you've done a bunch of screenplays uh, in a row, yeah. uh, the first thing is that you miss the things that you can do in a screenplay. Right. One thing you can't do, you know, in a movie, I can direct the audience's attention simply by having the camera on right. you. And it, it can do a slow push in, which now pushes, puts us inside your head while yeah. other people are talking on screen. I can't direct the audience's attention uh, right. uh, with a play. They're going to look at whoever is talking. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Um, had you, Mockingbird, of course, also existed as another play. Had you ever seen it in your theater growing career? Because no, I've no, never no. seen it. Uh, I've never seen it. I never yeah. read it. That was on purpose. Yeah. Uh, I, I figured 
uh, you know, we're working off the same source material. We're right. bound to write scenes that are uh, yeah. similar uh, right. in some way, and I want to be able to truthfully say that I've never read the book. Uh, I'm not, sorry, never uh, seen read, the, the play, uh, yeah. or read or seen the play. Yeah. Uh, I also did not read Ghost Out of Watchmen. Okay, yeah, um, just the uh, sequel. Pre- yeah, but, uh, the prequel sequel. It was, it was the first the, draft of. It was the rejected first draft right. of To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, uh, because I wanted to be able to truthfully say to you right. that I've never read Ghost of Watchmen. Right, right, yeah. Um, and uh, do you do you get asked? Speaking of TV, do you get asked about a West Wing revival essentially every day of your life? Does it feel like it? I don't mind. <laughs> do you not? All right. Well, yeah. um, tell me your thoughts about a West Wing revival. Is that, you must have been asked, uh, uh, you I, know, by someone who would have the might actually make I, yeah, it. Sure. Right? I've been asked yeah. by NBC and by, yeah. uh, and by Warner Brothers, and I'm very flattered by that invitation. It's an open invitation. Um, uh, and, uh, and my answer is always the same. If I can think of an idea that, uh, that has a chance of working, I'd love to get back together with those people yeah. and, uh, and those characters and do something. But I can't at the moment think of anything Wait. that won't feel like a very Brady Christmas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, another uh, project of yours, a social network, which is now almost 10 years old. I was uh, looking at the, um, can't believe uh, it. Looking at the data that uh, is of course about uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, um, and, he is obviously even more prominent than he was, yeah. you know, ten years ago. Does that has your work on him as a character affected how you sort of watch what's playing out now? You know, I can't help but think about it a little bit. I, yeah. I've, I've, I think a different relationship to Facebook uh, than, than most people right. do because I, uh, I wrote that movie. Yeah, you've thought about it in a completely different um, way, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, what's happening now uh, is. Dramatic uh, and dramatizable, and uh, so I, I, I don't want to make any news. Um, I know, of course not. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I do watch it and uh, and think is you know uh, is there a follow up? Right, uh, a follow up to the film. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, right. Um, speaking of films, uh, you recently started directing. Uh, you did. I mean, I guess it wasn't that recent. It was now a few years ago. It was Molly's Game. Um, uh, la- well, the movie came out last year, and yeah. I, we made it the year before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and you're working on another movie now with a great cast. Tell us a little bit about that. I think we're talking about the trial of Chicago. We are. Yes. Seven. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, great. That's the one. Yeah, I'm really excited <laughs> about that. We're hoping to be shooting uh, uh, this summer. Great. Uh, it's what we've got. Our it, it is. Uh, it's the true story of uh, the police riots uh, at the 1968 uh, Chicago Democratic Convention. It's not so much the story of the riots as it is the trial that followed the following year in 1969, where seven people, seven anti-war demonstrators, including Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and Tom Hayden um, uh, and some uh, uh, fairly famous young upstarts, uh, were put on trial, charged with a crime that no one had ever been charged with before. No one's ever been charged with it since. Conspiracy to incite a riot. Right. Um, and that trial, which lasted six months, became one of the craziest trials uh, in American history. Right. Uh, so, uh, so that's what the movie is about. And uh, uh, you're right; it's uh, uh, we've been putting together a great cast. Very exciting. Why did you decide to start directing? Why was that something you wanted to uh, start directing film? I should uh, say. I, it, it wasn't a kind of a generic decision of I want to start directing. It was that particular mm-hmm. Molly's game. Uh, the producers 
came to me, uh, and you know, we had we had put together a short list of directors uh, we thought were right for it. Uh, and at the end of that conversation, they said, "But we think you should direct it." Mm. Um, and uh, I started thinking about it. The, I, there was also the suicide mission thought in my head there. Um, I and just because of the because of what I, I felt very close to uh, uh, to what I'd written. Now I feel close to everything I've written. I I, I worried that there was going to be a with that script that there was going to be a magnetic gravitational pull toward the shiny objects uh, in that story the bold-faced names the money the glamour the gambling uh, uh, the sex and I, I was telling a story against the backdrop of those things uh, but a sort of more nuanced story about this person and uh, I wanted to make sure it stayed that way I had the time of my life directing it mm ended up being very proud of the movie uh, and its success was due to the phenomenal people I was surrounded by. Right, yeah. And you liked it enough to want to do it again with uh, Trial of Chicago 7. And then I liked it enough to want to do it again with the Trial of Chicago 7 and um, it was Steven Spielberg uh, who's um, uh, Amblin is, uh, is one of the producers right? uh, who said uh, and this is one of my favorite moments. Uh, he said, uh, "You are in the right to direct this movie with Molly's game." Wow, so I was happy about that. I mean, from Steven Spielberg. No I less, know right? <laughs> that's one where you okay. wait until you get in your car and right. start pumping your fist. <laughs> uh, what's your next play? Uh, I I don't know, but I can't wait. Okay. Um, uh, are you aiming for sooner rather than later yes, this time? Or? Yes, okay. I am. Um, and I hope that uh, uh, whatever it is, I get to do it with Bart. Well, we can't wait to see it, whatever it is. Thanks a lot, Gordon. Thanks, everyone. Nice it. to talk to you. That was Aaron Sorkin, whose hit Broadway adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird is nominated for nine Tonys and now playing at the Schubert Theater. If you like what you've heard on this and other episodes of Stagecraft, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. And heads up, I'll be in Nashville from May 31st through June 2nd for the first Pod X conference, bringing together your favorite networks, podcasters, and podcasts, from true crime and politics to pop culture and storytelling to, of course, theater and stagecraft, all in one weekend. Before that, I'll be back next week with another new episode, and until then, see you at the theater. Stagecraft is brought to you by Manhattan Center's TV1 Studio. Located on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City, TV1 features a 3,800 square foot stage, audience seating for up to 200, and 12,000 square feet of office production space. If that sounds like a lot, wait until you see how much more Manhattan Center's TV1 offers. You can find out now at mc34.com forward slash TV1. That's mc34.com forward slash TV1. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.